All right, John chapter 16. And Father, please bless the preaching of your word. So as Cody said, we're talking about sadness this morning. Everybody go, ah. Yeah, the problem is when you preach on sadness is God makes you have a sad week. Uh, it's true, you just have to live what you preach. It's a weird thing. Um, you know, the grief and sorrow are most deeply understood by those um, best acquainted with, with them. Uh, sadness is a funny thing. Grief is a funny thing. Loss is a funny thing. You think you understand it. You think you know about it. And then you go through it and you realize you don't know anything about it. Uh, you realize it's, it's this thing that comes upon you and you don't always know when it's going to come and you don't always know how it's going to affect you. And sometimes it's regarding some real significant, deep, and tangible thing that happened in your life, a, a loss. Um, sometimes it just happens and you don't even know why. Sometimes you're just overwhelmed, overcome with sadness and sorrow. And many of you guys have dealt with this dealt with, dealt with this all throughout your life. And so this morning, we just want to give attention to this. It's interesting, C.S. Lewis, he wrote two books on the idea of grief and sadness. And he, The first book he wrote was called The Problem with Pain, and it's uh, a philosophical approach to um, pain and sorrow. It's very sort of pragmatic, and he tries to, to break down what is the idea of sadness and sorrow, and how should we think about it. Um, very good work, and in, in a work that he still stood by, but this crazy thing happened to C.S. Lewis 20 years after he wrote that book, and it was that he lost his wife. His wife died, and he, within, I think, a few months, he wrote another book um, called A Grief Observed, and what's really interesting when you put the books in parallel is just, it's not that he, he walks back anything that he said in the first book, it's just that he has such a different perspective living from the inside of grief. Listen to some of the words that he said, and maybe this will resonate with some of you guys that have experienced deep grief and loss. He says, no one ever told me that grief felt so like fear, I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning, I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like being mildly drunk or con concussed, excuse me. There is a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in it is so interesting, yet I want the others to be about me. I dread the moments when the house is empty if only they would talk to one another and not to me. I just read that because I think C.S. Lewis, who's a fantastic writer, he kind of encapsulates some of the feelings that come when you're dealing with deep sorrow and deep grief. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as humans and as Christians, the question you've probably asked yourself before is why? Why grief? Why sorrow? Okay, well, we understand that we, we live in this broken world and things are broken, but, but then as, as Christians, we have to ask ourselves, but why do Christians who have been redeemed and bought and paid for, why do we still continue to have to deal with these deep sorrow, this deep sadness all throughout life? These are questions that we need to answer. Last week, uh, we made the point that Jesus is for and about your joy. He wants you to live in deep joy. And you might ask yourself, if you're being honest, how does joy and sorrow or joy and sadness, how do those two things relate to one another? How can Jesus want me to be joyful yet simultaneously allow so much sorrow into your life? How can those two things be in concert together? The good news is, is that this morning you're going to be taught by someone that has experienced deep grief. And I don't mean myself. 
This morning, we are gonna be taught about grief, about how to think about grief, about how to deal with grief from the one that Isaiah 53 refers to as the man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This man is our Lord, our King, our Savior, our Rabbi, Jesus Christ. He is the one that grieved so deeply, more deeply than any of us could ever imagine. He was a man of sorrows. Isn't that interesting to think about? Like of all the things that the Bible could have called Jesus in anticipation of this messianic figure, the man of sorrows is the definition. The man of sorrows is the title. Acquainted with grief, Isaiah 53 says, surely he bore our transgression. Jesus was a heavy soul. He carried a heavy burden. He experienced deep grief and deep sadness. So how do we deal with grief? How do we think about grief? What does Jesus have to teach us about grief? And I think John chapter 16 is probably the best place that we can go to not only understand grief, but to understand how it actually, listen, how it actually enhances our joy. How it actually enhances our joy. There's lots of ways you can approach grief. You can uh, avoid it. Okay, some of you are really good at this. This is your thing. Like, you like to avoid grief. This is the passive, or pardon me, this is the active approach. This is, I'm gonna do anything I can to not make anything hard in my life. Some of you guys that were firstborns or type A, um, you're, you're very good at paying your bills on time. The reason is because you're very worried about grief. I don't wanna have hard things in my life, so I'm gonna keep my ducks in a row so that I'll never get in trouble. You know, you're the one, you, you, you know who you are, right? This is, if you've seen the movie Inside Out, this is in the scene where uh, Joy, the emotion inside of Riley's head, she doesn't know what to do with sadness. What do we do with sadness? So she draws the circle of sadness and she says, your job is to stay in the circle. That's what you get to do, right? So you guys that are, that are, that are sadness managers, you're, you're professional at keeping sadness in the circle. Don't let it out. You're the kind of people that when someone in your family brings up something kind of hard, you say, okay, let's talk about something positive. Enough of this negativity. Let's move on. Some of you, uh, the way you deal with sadness is you ignore it. This is the passive approach. This is just to kind of pretend that it's not there. Some of you try to replace it with the shallow joys that we talked about last week, right? Let's just fill it. Let's just backfill it with things that don't really matter, that distract us. Some people love it. Some people love sadness. They, they really allow sadness to control them, to rule them, to, to live um, their life through them. When I was a kid, we called these emo kids. Remember emo kids? Um, yeah, I had a friend growing up that painted his whole room black, and he would just sit in his room listening to Linkin Park, staring at the wall. And I'd come over, and I'd be like, hey, dude, you want to go skateboard? And he'd just be like, I'm like, Hello? Okay, see you later. And I'd go off. I mean, that was, that was, he just let sadness be his world. So lots of different ways to approach it, but how does Jesus approach his sadness? The man of sorrows, our ultimate example. One of the things that we've said all throughout this series, Emotional Intelligence, is that Jesus is our template for how we deal with emotions. We are, by the way, in a series called Emotional Intelligence. This is the fourth sermon. If you wanna go back, they're all on our website, on our YouTube channel. If you want to go back and listen to the different emotions. And essentially, the reason we're talking about emotions is because emotions are part of life, like it or not. Right now, you guys are all experiencing a lot of different emotions. Okay, and if you were to sit down and just sit there and write them out, you would be experiencing multi a multiplicity, multifaceted emotions constantly. As humans, we are emotional beings. And this is not an accident. This is by design. God made you to have emotions. He wanted you to have emotions. It's part of his design. Pre-sin, pre-fall, emotion is a good thing. 
Okay, so, so we've talked about the fact that we're not called to suppress our emotion. We're also not called to be possessed by our emotion. We are called to be people that sift our emotion. And so we're defining emotional intelligence as this. Emotional intelligence is sifting, conforming, and harnessing our emotions to glorify God more fully. We want to be those that use and utilize emotion in order to glorify God better. That's the goal. And our intended outcome for this series is that we would become emotionally whole and emotionally healthy followers of Jesus that feel deeply in the ways that Jesus feels. Now, I'm going to try to make a very singular point this morning. I don't want to drag you all throughout the Bible. There's all kinds of things we could talk about this morning in sadness, but I'm going to make a premise, and I believe that Jesus is going to back this up. It's his idea, okay, in John chapter 16. We're going to get there in a minute. My premise is is actually uh, very simple. My premise is that God wants to grow your grief. God wants to grow your grief. Grief is like an unwanted pregnancy, okay? The, the thing that you, you, you weren't expecting, it just, it just came. You weren't ready for it. It, it. it was thrust upon you. And when an unwanted pregnancy comes and you're, let's say you're a teenager, you're just not in a place where you're ready to, 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 to raise a human life, right? When that unwanted pregnancy comes, you have to make a decision in the culture that we live in right now, unfortunately. That decision is, will I abort this unwanted pregnancy, or will I choose to go through with it? This is the decision. I would suggest to you that grief for the Christian, for the believer, sorrow, sadness, loss, is to be grown, to be brought to full term. And I would suggest that many of us are actually squashing and stifling what the Lord wants to do in your life because we cut sadness out. We destroy it. We don't want it. We cover it. We distract from it. We ignore it. We avoid it. We don't want to feel sad. I don't want to feel sorrow. I don't want to feel grief. I don't want to feel lost. And so when it comes and it's thrust upon us, we just, we try to get it out of our life as quick as possible. There is much theology written out there, poor theology out there that says wrong things like to be a Christian is to just be happy. And if you're sad, you just need to choose to be happy. Okay, tell that to Jesus, the man of sorrows. Jesus did not avoid his sorrow. He did not stifle his sorrow. He did not ignore his sorrow. He grew his sorrow. So my call for you this morning, and this might sound strange, but is my, my call actually for you is to see your grief as something to grow. And it needs to grow in three ways, and here's our outline. It needs to grow up, it needs to grow in, and it needs to grow out. It needs to grow up, it needs to grow in, it needs to grow out. It needs to grow up to maturity, your grief does. It needs to grow in to joyful clarity. And it needs to grow out to genuine empathy. Up to maturity, in to joyful clarity, and out to genuine empathy. I want to send you out the doors this morning seeing grief and sadness and loss not as something to be suppressed or avoided, but something to be lived into, in fact, grown into, okay? So let's begin. First of all, number one, I want you to see your grief as something to grow up, to grow up to maturity. And we, when, in order to grow up our grief, we need to start by asking the question, what is it? 
What is sadness? What is grief? What is, what is loss? What are these things? I would define grief this way. A psychological, neurological, and emotive reaction to a perceived reality that something is not as it ought to be. Something is not as it ought to be. Sadness and grief was not part of the original design of God's creation. How do I know that? What's the first thing that you ask someone when they seem sad? What's wrong? What's wrong? How do you know instinctively to do that? What's wrong? Why do you ask that? Because sadness is a evidential, it's evidence that something is wrong. You weren't meant to be sad. You weren't created. Sadness is evidence that something is not as it should be. Sadness is is a revealer that something in the world is broken. The best word I can use to describe sorrow and grief and sadness is loss. Something is missing. Like waking up one morning and realizing that your legs are gone. There's something missing here. Now, it could be a small thing or a big thing, but regardless, it's the same feeling. Something's off. Why do you feel sadness? You feel sadness because something is off. Something is wrong. It's very non-evolutionary, isn't it? Sadness. I I mean, pain makes sense, right? Pain forces me and causes me to do things that are good for my own evolutionary good. You know, causes me to get up. I'm hungry. I got to eat. I got to go hunt. I got to whatever, you know. But sadness, how do you explain sadness? How do you explain soul sadness? What's the evolutionary function in that? There is none. The evolutionary function in sadness isn't there. The reality is is that you were created to be in perfect communion with God and that communion has been severed. The resulting emotion is sadness, sorrow, something is not as it should be. The Bible has a lot to say about sadness as Cody mentioned earlier. First of all, it explains its origin. Sadness and sorrow entered into the world as a foreign entity with sin. Sin leads to brokenness and disconnection and dysfunctionality, which therefore creates sadness, grief. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn. Interesting, in Matthew 5. You would expect the Bible to sort of just make sadness the enemy, you know, make, make sadness the thing that needs to go. But in, in reality, actually, the Lord many times says that he comes near to those who are sad. In Revelation, we see sadness coming to an end. It's not part of God's eternal design. It's not where things are leading. It's a means to an end. Sadness and sorrow is an emotion. We see God express himself. The Holy Spirit is grieved. We see God grieved in Genesis that he made man. Okay, so this is a God-reflecting reality. A mature grief is a sifted and a surrendered grief that reflects what grieves God. Now, what I want to do here is we try to define sadness is I want to delineate for you, distinguish for you the difference between what the Bible calls godly sorrow and what the Bible calls worldly sorrow. And we need to decide, or we need to see that there's a difference here, okay? There is a difference between the two. What is the difference? 
Okay, what is the difference? Worldly sorrow is primarily concerned with self. Worldly sorrow is primarily concerned with self. So when you're depressed because you are sad because you didn't get what you wanted, that is a sadness. Now, it's still proving that something's wrong. It's still proving that something's off. But the problem is, is it's about you. It's about self. Whereas godly sorrow, its primary concern is God and others. Okay, now that's why Corinthians, if you want to look at it later, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, says that godly sorrow leads to repentance, worldly sorrow leads to death. Why? Because worldly sorrow never deals with sin. Okay, it's like the person that got caught sinning. Okay, now when you get caught sinning, you can repent. But if you just repent enough to get back to sinning, that leads to death. That's the difference. The difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow is the the affections of the heart. Godly sorrow says something is wrong and I'm concerned for how that has wronged my relationship with the Lord. Worldly sorrow says I'm only concerned with how this affects my immediate pleasure. Okay, so I got caught doing something. I don't like that people think less of me now, so what do I have to do to address it and move on? There's a difference. Worldly sorrow fills itself with worldly remedies, typically at the cost of others. You're depressed, so you typically will commit a sin in order to feel better, which costs others. Okay, that's worldly sorrow. Godly sorrow fills itself in God's remedies, in in, in enrichment of others. Worldly sorrow looks to self-prescribed solutions. Okay, I'm sad. What do I think is gonna fix it? Godly sorrow leads to God's prescribed solutions. Worldly sorrow leads to despair and hopelessness, and godly sorrow leads to increased hope and faithfulness, okay? So we need to distinguish those two because when I say that God wants to grow your grief, I'm not saying he wants you to be emo. I'm not saying he wants you to be depressed. I'm not saying he wants you to just be sad and like being sad. I'm saying that God wants to grow up your grief into a mature, God-reflecting, Christ-exalting grief, a grief that is deep and meaningful and ultimately reflects what God cares about. That's what I mean when I say that. A mature grief is a sifted grief, a surrendered grief that reflects what God cares about. Now, what I would like you to see this morning in this idea of our grief growing is that perhaps God's intention for your grief is not that it would get less and less as you get older, but what if God's intention for your grief is actually that it would increase? What if if God's intention for your grief is that it would be not static, but that it would be growing? And you're thinking, are you kidding me? I don't want more grief. I don't want more grief, but what if God actually is calling you to more grief? The path of sorrow. What if this is actually where he's taking you? Now, I want to give you a three-point premise, and this three-point premise hopefully is going to make my point for me, okay? A three-point premise, meaning if this is true and this is true, then therefore this must be true, okay? Premise number one, Jesus wants you to walk like he walked. Would you agree? Okay. He said, take up your cross and follow me. 
That is the call to be a believer. It's not something we talk about a lot in the Western Christianity. We emphasize more sort of the the cognitive belief, but in reality, when Jesus called people to follow him, he meant, I literally want you to follow me. Like, do as I do. Do as I do. Jesus is not only our living sacrifice, he's also our living example, right? So that's premise number one. Jesus wants you to live the way Jesus lived. Premise number two, Jesus' grief grew both in weight and in depth. Have you ever thought about that? I never thought about that until this week. And, and once you see it, you can't unsee it. It's amazing. Jesus' ministry for three, three and a half years he grew in his sadness, in his sorrow. You know, the majority of times that we have Jesus showing or expressing sadness were in the last week of his life. The last week of his life. It seems to grow. It's the first time we see Jesus grieving is in Mark chapter 6, verse 34, and it says that he was grieved at their unbelief. That's really the only time we see Jesus showing grief. But then the last seven days of his life, he is constantly sorrowful constantly weeping. Luke chapter 19, 41, we see Jesus weeping over Jerusalem. He crests the hill and he looks at the city, the city of God, the city of peace, and he knows that that city will have him dead within a matter of days, and he weeps bitterly. John chapter 11, you guys know the scene, Jesus is at the tomb of his friend who has just died and his other friends, Mary and Martha, are weeping and wailing. Death is in the scene. And and even though Jesus is there, the resurrection and the life, they still can't seem to believe that he's the hope. And two of the most profound words in the whole Bible, you know what they are? Jesus wept. He allowed sorrow to come out. He allowed sorrow to to, to well up and he showed it and expressed it publicly. Now, scholars debate about why he was weeping and why was he crying? Was he upset at the unbelief or was he sad about the whole situation? My answer is yes. The whole brokenness of this world grieved Jesus deeply and as he walked through his ministry and as he matured as a servant of the Father, he let grief have more and more and more of a footprint in his life. It was part of his maturing process all the way up to the garden which is hours before he's gonna go to the cross and he's sweating drops of blood, grieving out loud to the Father if there be any other way He's allowing his sadness, he's allowing his emotion, he's allowing the fear of this loss to well up and come out, finding its climax on the cross when he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? What I want you to see here is that Jesus' growth expanded, expanded to a climax. So if, if premise one is true, that we are to walk in the path of Jesus, if premise two is true, is that Jesus, in his path, his grief grew, then premise three is hard to reject. And that is that perhaps our grief, our sadness, is to grow. Perhaps our grief and our sadness, I want you to, to think about, if you're a Lord of the Rings fan, I want you to imagine Frodo. You know, there's this sub-narrative that goes through the movie, and that is that Frodo begins carrying the ring in the first movie, and it's not a burden for him yet. It's just a ring. But as the movie progresses, the ring becomes more and more of a burden. It becomes heavier. 
It becomes more controlling of him. I, I, I don't know for sure, but I, I wonder if Tolkien wasn't picturing to some degree this idea that Jesus, the man of sorrows, the one that came into the world to destroy evil from the inside out, was carrying the weight of the world on his shoulders. And as he got closer to Mordor, or in the case of the gospel, he got closer to the cross, the weight of what he was carrying increased. I think Jesus saw his grief not as something to be avoided, but as something to be grown, to be expanded, to be deepened. As he became closer and more trusting of the Father, the, what, free, what grieved the Father began to grieve Jesus to greater degrees. What if Christian maturity is about growing our sorrow? Any of you guys have kids? It's Father's Day. You know, I, didn't, I didn't really know how hard life was until I had kids. And there's a lot of things that I don't know yet. There's a lot of things that I don't know because I haven't been through them. But what I've learned is that the more people you love, the more grief you have. Those two things are assured. You cannot have love and not have grief. You want to be a shallow person? Just live on the surface, never go deep. And you want real friends? They're going to hurt you. You want to have, you want to have a, a good relationship with your kids? They're going to make you cry. They're going to tell you they hate you. That is part of growing up. Jesus invited grief. Now, he didn't just invite any grief. He didn't invite any grief. He, he invited a specific grief. You know what the grief was he invited? It was the grief that the Father asked him to carry. I would encourage you that you need to push back against this Western assumption that grief is something to be avoided. We built our entire economy off of it. Two-day shipping, it's fantastic. Remember when we used to have to wait 10 days to get your package? Not anymore, baby, two days. And drones are coming, they're gonna be dropping it in our yard. This is great, right? Remember when you used to actually have to go get your food? They bring it to your door. It's crazy. You remember when you used to actually have to, to, to like pull the cord of the phone and, and shut yourself in your room so you could talk and, and your parents wouldn't hear? But now when you're a kid, you just got a cell phone. I mean, we've built our economy on grief avoidance. My suggestion to you is that if you would like to grow up in Christ, you better switch that paradigm. It's not about avoiding. It's about growing. If you want to grow in Jesus, you better buckle up. If you want to grow up in Jesus, you're going to shed tears. There are some of you in here right now that are going through intensely hard things. Those are not needless things. Those are things that Jesus is using to grow you up. If you want to love deeply, you're going to hurt deeply. Tim Keller said, Christ did not suffer so you wouldn't suffer. He suffered so when you suffer, you will become like him. It's called the fellowship of Christ's suffering. We are privileged and honored to carry a similar cross to the cross of Christ. I would invite you into that. Now, why is it so important that Jesus' grief expand? Here's where I want to get into John chapter 16. What John 16 is so fascinating to me is that Jesus is trying to prepare his disciples for the grief that they are about to go through. This is a, a matter of hours before he goes to the cross. And listen to what he says. Just read 16 through 20. He says, a little while and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples and said to one another, what is this that he says to us? 
a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and they will, and you will see me because I'm going to the Father. What are you talking about, Jesus? Now, this is classic disciples. They, I have a theory, and that is that they knew exactly what he was talking about. They don't want to hear it. They are classic grief avoiders, right? They don't want to hear it. They don't want to know. I don't know what that is, but I'm like, squirrel. Yeah. Their grief of, they don't want to know. They don't want to hear. Jesus was explicitly clear about the cross. They don't want to hear it. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? I mean, you're so confusing, Jesus. Can you just tell us what you're talking about? You're going to be here, then you're not going to be here, then you're going to be here again. We'll be sad, but then we'll be happy, and our sadness is going to turn into our joy. And what, what are you talking about, Jesus, right? Come on, can we get a commentary? Like the disciples are like, can we get, can we get the commentary on this? No? Okay. We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Now listen to what he says. Tune in. Truly, truly, in other words, this is important. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Now stop right there. The world will rejoice because the world wants Jesus dead because they are at odds with him. He's their enemy. He's, he's saying there is coming a time, there is coming a moment where you are going to suffer and grieve and be sad. He's talking about a matter of minutes, hours at this point. Now just consider briefly the kindness of Jesus here to take his guys aside, knowing what's coming, know that they're, they're willfully ignorant of it, and he takes them aside and he says, guys, I need you to look at me in the eyes. I need you to get ready for this. This is gonna get hard. And it did. It got so hard that Peter denied him. They scattered. The sheep, or the shepherd was, was, was killed and the sheep had scattered. And he's trying to prepare them for this. Now, understanding the importance of this, this is that moment in the, in the, in the locker room where the coach is like, listen, guys, this is super important. Understanding that I want you to see what Jesus drives them to. And I'm gonna make my second point here. Not only does grief need to grow up, it needs to grow in. It needs to grow into joyful clarity. Look at what Jesus says in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep, almost certain, and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Your sorrow will turn into joy. Now, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say your sorrow will be replaced with joy. He doesn't say your sorrow will be traded in. He says your sorrow, the material of sorrow, the, the raw building material of sorrow will be turned into joy. The joy will be made out of the sorrow. The sorrow creates the joy. You can't get the joy without the sorrow. Does that make sense? It's through the sorrow that you get the joy. You can't get one without the other. What if joy and sadness are not opposites, but synergists? What if they don't, they don't belong separated? What if they belong together? What if it's through our sadness that true joy comes? That seems to be what Jesus is getting at here. Now, you might be saying, okay, Sam, that sounds interesting, but how? How does sadness lead to joy? How does, how does hard things, grief and loss, how does that lead to deep joy? Well, Jesus answers the question. Look at what he says. 
He says, your sorrow will be, your, your, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He gives this analogy. He says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. What is he talking about? You know, back then, like 50% of women would die in childbearing. Can you imagine that? Every child is a death wish in that time. There's no C-sections. There's no hospitalization. There's no epidural, okay? You, you, ha- you getting pregnant was an anticipation of great joy and an anticipation of great possible death. The clock, the nine-month clock for a woman was potentially the countdown to her end, okay? You need to understand that. She has sor- when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And Jesus, of course, is talking about his hour. He's had it on his mind for 33 years. This moment is coming where he is going to the cross. And he's anticipating it. She no longer, pardon me, 21. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. For joy that a human being has been born into the world, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and one will take your, no one will take your joy from you. Why? Because it's deep joy. Remember we talked about that last week. No one can take it from you. And that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. So Jesus is trying to connect for them the, 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 the connection between their sadness and their joy. And he wants them to see that the joy is through the sadness. And he does it by giving an analogy. The analogy is of a woman who is in labor. This is a brilliant analogy. I want you to consider a few things that I think Jesus is getting at here uh, as to to this analogy of labor. How is labor similar to God using our grief to produce joy in our lives? Okay, number one, like labor pains create life in the womb, the pain of grief cultivates growth in your life. Okay, what I mean by that is that any of you that have had a baby, and I haven't, but I have a wife that's had a few, okay, um, knows that there is a lot of pain. There's a lot of discomfort. And the temptation in that is to despair. This is, this is too much. It's too uncomfortable. Too many pains. Too much, too much uncomfortable. But, but the reality, what I would do with my wife is I'd try to remind her, hey, babe, don't forget that every single pain is God making life in you. There's no wasted pain in labor or in, 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 in childbearing. All of those pains are for something. They're creating something. And so Jesus is trying to communicate that same thing. See, Jesus didn't come to the world to suffer unnecessarily. He came to create something, redemption and life, and every pain that he experienced was for something. And the same thing is true of our grief. The same thing is true of our sorrow. Our grief is not unnecessary. It is used in the hands of the Lord to create something to maximize our joy. Our grief forces us to action, doesn't it? Like the discomfort of pregnancy makes you long for labor. Think about this for a minute. This is always so bizarre for me. You know, whenever my wife was pregnant, it should be like, I'm so uncomfortable and I'm so stressed about labor. And I'm like, yeah, that sounds terrible. It sounds terrifying, you know? And then once she hits nine months, she's like, oh, I want to go into labor so bad. You're like, what do you mean you want to go to labor? How do you possibly want to go into labor? That sounds terrifying. I don't care. Just get this baby out of me, right? Julianne, where are you at? Give me an amen, right? Julianne's just like, okay. 
Like, just get this baby out of me. I'm sick of it. I can't handle it anymore. How does that make any sense? It makes sense because the superiority of the relief is greater than the fear of the labor. Jesus was driven to the cross by two engines. The first was joy. The second was sorrow. The first was the joy that was set before him according to Hebrews chapter 12. The second was the agony that he was feeling. The burden of sin was placed upon his shoulders. The task of redemption was on his back and it increased to a point that was about to break him and he needed to fulfill his mission. He's like, I gotta get this done. I gotta go to the cross, get this baby out. You see, what God does in our suffering is he, in our sadness, in our sorrow, in our grief, is he uses it to make us uncomfortable with the brokenness of this world. And listen to me, you should be uncomfortable with the brokenness of this world. It should bother you. If it doesn't bother you, I'm concerned. It should bother you deeply. Jesus was driven by the weight and the heaviness of the brokenness of the world. It drove him to obedience. And I would suggest to you that many times why we do not obey Jesus is because we do not allow ourselves to feel what he wants us to feel. So we avoid labor. Too hard, too costly, too scary, too dangerous. Guess what? Anyone that's had a baby knows you can't avoid it. It's coming. Get the baby out. It's got to happen. Jesus is saying the cross is coming and I'm headed straight for it. To, to walk in the, the will of the Lord is to say, God, I want to feel the discomfort with what's wrong with this world so that I'm driven to address it, so that I'm driven to deal with it. And it's the craziest thing. This is what Jesus is getting at here. It's the craziest thing. When that baby comes, everything changes. The tears become joy. And women, they have amnesia. 20 minutes later, they want another baby. It's like, what are you thinking? Don't you remember? I told you guys, it's terrible. I was like, dude, just wait. I, told, I was like, just wait. You're going to want another one. Jasmine's like, no. I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 you just wait. It's replaced with joy. The sorrow turns into joy. Why? Because the contrast is so severe. You go from the most intense moment in your life to the most joyous moment in your life. The tears are still left on your cheeks from the fear and the sorrow and they're instantly replaced with the tears of joy that this new life is coming. And this is Jesus' analogy. This is what he's trying to get these guys to understand. Listen to me. He says, guys, you're gonna go through labor because I'm gonna go through labor. But remember that through the labor is a superior joy. It's only through our sadness that we can experience true joy. You know, I gotta hand it to Pixar. They might be the Antichrist, I don't know, but they've been putting some weird stuff out lately. But the movie Inside Out, I think the Holy Spirit might have had a little hand in that, okay? I think so, because the whole point of the movie Inside Out, it's so brilliant, is that they're trying to keep Riley from being sad. Don't let Riley be sad, right? Sadness is starting to well up in her life. And, 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 and sadness, the little blue you know, lady, she keeps touching the joy. And then when she touches the joy, it starts to turn blue. Don't do that, right? Circle of sadness. You stay in there. Don't. And then, and then joy gets totally deported from the control room, right? I sound like such a nerd right now. That's okay. She gets deported. What are we going to do, Riley's never going to be happy again because she can't be happy because her core memories are sad now. 
What's the point of the movie? The point of the movie is that her joy is greater in concert with sadness. Why? Because her sadness allows her to see what is truly valuable. It's not playing hockey. It's not being silly. It's her family. It's her life. It allows her to see what's truly most valuable. Now, you have to see this. What is Jesus trying to drive these guys to see? What is he trying to get them to see? He's trying to get them to see that the resurrection is the joy. The resurrection is the baby, if you will. It's the thing that Jesus is going to go by with his life. But listen to me. I can't make this more clear. You don't get the gladness of the resurrection without the grief of the cross. And just because Jesus went to the cross for you doesn't mean you don't still have to take one up yourself. Does that make sense? Now listen to me, this is really important. You don't carry the world on your shoulders. You are not Jesus. Can you just say that really quick? I'm not Jesus. Okay. You're not Jesus, but you are to share in his weight. That's the call of being a Christian. I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go backpacking with my son. He's uh, just about to turn six on Thursday. We're gonna go backpacking in three weeks, and that means we're gonna hike a couple miles in, and we're gonna camp. Now, you better believe he's gonna carry something. But who's carrying all the weight? Let's be honest. I'm carrying, I'm gonna be carrying 50, 60 pounds. I'm gonna give him a cute little backpack, and I'm gonna put his sleeping bag in there, and I'm gonna put some socks in there, and, and, and we're gonna be walking. You better believe he's gonna be feeling like, oh, this is heavy. And I'm gonna be like, <laughs> right? But what am I not gonna say? Come on, you wimp. Come on, I'm carrying all the weight. Suck it up. Like, no, I'm not gonna say that. I'm gonna say, yeah, buddy, isn't this hard? Isn't this great? We're doing this together. Let's get up that hill. You and me, buddy, we conquered this. And you know what? He's going to go home and he's going to feel good because he got to be part of the suffering with his dad. It's going to be fun. I don't want to put too much weight in his bag. I just want to put enough. I would suggest to you that if you are living a life that is in absolute avoidance of any grief and any sorrow, you are missing out on the joy of the fellowship of Christ's cup, the the joy of the fellowship of Christ's cross. You're missing out. You're, you're not putting the backpack on. He wants you to feel sorrow over things that burden him. I mean, some of you guys have kids that, that are not believers. Some of you have kids that, that have walked away from the Lord want nothing to do with you. You know, some, some of you look around this city and you see brokenness and drug use and homelessness and all of this, and there's a temptation to go, eh, Netflix. Don't do it. Press into it. Feel it. You need to feel it. It should bother you that your kids aren't walking with Jesus if they're not. It should bother you that there's so much pain and sorrow in this world. It should bother you. In the words of our own Dana Hankins, she said, grief grief tills the soil of our hearts, allowing the roots of joy to sink deep. It's so true. We want deep joy, but without without the sorrow of our life tilling, the, the, the roots won't get down there. We need to feel we need to let ourselves feel. My last point is simply this. We need to let our, growth, our grief, grief grow up, in, and lastly, out to genuine empathy. Jesus used his grief in order to prepare the disciples for their grief. 
okay? And the highest honor of the believer is to get to be the hands and feet of Christ as he comforts others. You ever think about that? That is an honor. To become incarnate like the Lord did into this broken world, you get to incarnate into someone else's broken world. And listen to what Paul the Apostle said in 2 Corinthians 1.3. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we which ourselves were comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in Christ's comfort. We are afflicted. It is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope is for you. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. You see how, how connected the two things are? You don't get one without the other. And the purpose of it is that you might go comfort others. You guys have been through hard things, every single one of you. I know all of you guys. You've been through hard things. Don't think for a second that hard thing was for no reason. God allowed you to feel that grief in part so that you can help others walk through those griefs. You are a sharpened tool in the tool belt, tool belt of a kind and gracious and comforting God. You know how to help people through these things. You do. Let me just give you three closing tips and I gotta, I gotta wrap it up. Three closing tips for how to grow your grief. Hopefully, you see grief now as a thing to be grown, not a thing to be avoided. And if it is, then here's three ways to do that. I want you to resist the three F words. Okay? Resist the three F words. Fix, forget, and fill. Those are the enemies of deep, gr deep grief. You're gonna be tempted to fix, you're gonna be tempted to forget, you're gonna be tempted to fill. Fixing leads to self-reliance, doesn't it? You feel sad, you fix it. Your wife feels sad, you fix it. Husbands were terrible at this. Friends were terrible. Oh, they're sad, I wanna fix it. Okay, if you can, great. But they need to feel grief too. If you look to fix everything, self-reliance becomes a problem for you. Forgetting leads to ignorance, doesn't it? I don't wanna deal with hard things, so I'm just not gonna talk about it. You're not tuned into reality. God wants you to tune into this broken reality so that he can tune you into his ultimate reality, okay? And if you're tuned out, if you're ignorant, you can't really help anything. And lastly, he doesn't want you filling. Filling leads to hopelessness. Why? Because when you just simply fill your sorrow with things or shallow pleasures, it's depressing because those things don't really help, do they? They don't help. Narcotics, they don't help. Entertainment, they don't help. Food, it doesn't help. It just makes it worse. It compounds the issue. The Lord wants us to press into our grief to feel deeply. Avoid the temptation of numbing something that you need to feel. That's the one downside of an epidural, right? You don't always know when you're supposed to push. In reality, sometimes we need to feel. We need to feel so that we know how to react accurately. We need to feel. So first, resist the three F words. Second, sift your sorrows. Remember that there is a difference between godly and worldly sorrow. Just because you're feeling sad doesn't mean it's godly. You may be feeling sad because you're being selfish. 
You may be feeling sad because you're idolatrous. You may be worshiping something and expecting too much out of it. You may be feeling sad because you're just self-obsessed. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Sift your sorrows. Ask good questions of them. Make sure that you are deeply moved by what grieves God, but that you're also deeply rooted in what is true and unmovable and unchanging. And number three, move into the mess. Move into the mess. Um, You want to be like Jesus? Go somewhere you don't have to go to deal with the crap of people that you don't have to deal with, dealing with the sin and brokenness of a world that you didn't commit. Take it on yourself. That's what Jesus did. He was in heaven. He was with the Father. He had no needs. He moved into the worst neighborhood. And then he took ownership of the neighborhood. He took the sin of the neighborhood on his own shoulders. He put himself in the mess. And it grieved him deeply. But on the other end of that came eternal redemption for the bride of Christ. You want to be like Jesus? Roll up your sleeves and get in the mess. And there is plenty of mess. There's plenty of mess. Got to get in it. You want to experience deep joy? Experience deep grief. You want to experience deep love? Get ready to get hurt. I don't say that to belittle it. I just say that to say that there was one thing Jesus was trying to teach these guys. It was that he came to give his life away in order to give us the template for how we can give our life away for others. One of the most important things he was trying to teach these guys. Move into the mess because with great grief comes great joy. Amen? Amen. I'm gonna invite Ryan and David to come up while I pray and then I'll kind of explain a little bit what we're gonna do with the next 10 minutes.